1: What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle D'Abro.
2: Kev, I gotta say, these allergies, bro, they are kicking our ass. It has not been kind to us today.
1: No, dude. I mean, Kyle and I have been texting throughout the day. Kyle was damn near dying at the dealership. I made a stupid decision and opened my car window as pollen was pouring into my car as I drove away, so... I've been fine relatively good all day, and then I just made a mistake on my way to the gym, so now I'm suffering. So Kyle and I are going to be struggling just a little bit tonight, so bear with us for this episode.
2: Just kind of keep this in mind, you guys. I had to wear sunglasses inside CarMax when I was selling my car today. I looked like an idiot wearing sunglasses, suffering while everybody's like looking at me like, what is this dude doing with sunglasses on? But I had to do what I had to do to kind of just get out of there as quick as I could but sunglasses helped out but yeah this is gonna be uh this is gonna be a struggle session for us you guys so just kind of bear in mind with us be a little bit patient with us if we make any weird faces it's just us trying to fight through it as best as we can but Kev we've got a bunch of topics to get through today uh it's gonna be a busy agenda so uh lay out the agenda for us my guy
1: absolutely so today we are going to talk about some NBA news some NFL news I mean we got a pretty decently packed agenda for you today I'm going to start off with the NBA. So, I mean, as everybody's well aware, um, there were some comments made by Draymond Green in regards to Dylan Brooks. We're going to give our thoughts on that and what we think about how this little beef is transitioning into a good rivalry potentially with the Golden State Warriors and the Memphis Grizzlies. And I use the term rivalry loosely because... Memphis hasn't done anything. Then we're going to dive into, obviously, the uh, the situation with Fred Van Fleet and his comments about uh, NBA referees this season. In particular, um, he mentions one specifically, and he was, I guess, eventually fined by the end of today $30,000 for his comments about that referee and the officiating. So we'll talk a little bit about that and what we think other NBA players should be doing, similar to what Fred said, but in a little bit more of a respectful way, but then again, Kyle and I don't really care about that. Just let it rip. Uh, third in the NBA, we are definitely going to talk about JJ Redick's comments with uh, Kendrick Perkins and our thoughts as to how that applies to the MVP award with Nikola Jokic and where that award stands um, throughout the NBA as a whole. I think Kendrick Perkins' comments were a little unjustified. I think JJ Redick putting him in his place was. Well-needed. Perk has said some crazy things over the years, but again, we're going to preview that conversation a little bit more away from the political side and focus more on the comments toward the MVP award as a whole and what that means for Nikola Jokic. And to kind of round it out, we're going to go pretty much full circuit with the NFL quarterback free agency news. Uh, Obviously, we're going to talk about Daniel Jones, Derek Carr, where Lamar, uh, Lamar Jackson stands with him being tagged. And then, of course, the latest news with Aaron Rodgers potentially being a New York Jet within the next coming days. There were rumors that a deal may get done by the end of today. Today is not over yet. And by today, I mean Thursday. But again, we saw some kind of trending news from Adam Schefter saying that a deal could get done. So unless the Jets completely fumble the bag, Aaron, Rodger, Aaron Rodgers could very well be a New York Jet um, come the end of the week. So we got a jam-packed agenda for you guys, like I said. Can't wait to get it started. Like I said... Bear with us. Maybe taking some breaks. I may sneeze. Kyle may be sneezing. Just- <laughs> I already had a flare-up, bro. We're, <laughs> 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 we're struggling so hard, guys. It's not we're, even
2: funny. We're not even five minutes in, and I already had a freaking flare-up. So this is going to be fun, you guys. So if you guys are just listening, you're probably like, what, what the hell is going on? But if you guys are watching this, it's like, oh, my God. These these dudes are going to be struggling.
1: We'll figure it out. But let's just go right into the NBA. Let's get this going. <laughs> <laughs> draymond green has been known to have a uh, a very loose mouth throughout his nba career he has made some i pause i made a, the suspect comment but you know what i'm saying like he is he is he has never shied away from making comments that rub people the wrong way and his comments about dylan brooks man although aggressive or passive aggressive i loved every second of it to be honest with you
2: yeah, I just thought it was, it, it was a, well, he was on his podcast and he was yeah. just talking about how basically Dylan Brooks, he made this comparison is like, I think it was at the end of this little video segment that I was watching. And he was basically saying, Dylan Brooks, it's like, you're not a champion. You're just a clown, bro. It just kind of just walked away from the mic after that. And honestly, when it comes to Draymond, like you said, he's had the tendency to always be vocal about his stances or his opinions on topics at hand, but when it comes to the Grizzlies, they kind of just set themselves up for it, and Draymond just takes full advantage of it.
1: I just, I'm, I'm looking at the score. I know for a fact that obviously the Warriors lost today, I and I spoke too. you know, yeah, it, it, it was pretty bad. If, if I'm looking, if I can read. One thirty one one ten. We're talking about a 20 past the six, bro. Twenty one point blowout and John didn't play. So there's not really much people can say. Dylan Brooks actually made a comment today. He said uh, you should give the mic to Draymond. Make him keep talking about me so I can play better. Keep doing his podcast. It's cute. It's fun for him. I mean, four time champion. Memphis hasn't really done anything of meaningfulness. So like we're going to dive right into this right now. So, Kyle, I'm just going to read Draymond's the most important quote for me that probably took this and escalated it to the point where it, beca- it became what it is now. It Draymond said, and I quote, if you ever wondered why the Memphis Grizzlies are not ready to compete for a championship, look no further than this idiot right here. Give me your thoughts on Draymond's comments.
2: I mean, when it comes to Draymond Green, it's safe to say that he's always vocal about his opinions, and I can appreciate that. And when it comes to this situation... I can definitely understand where he's coming from and just kind of looking at it from just a troll perspective. I think he made a good point simply when it comes to just overall trolling about Dylan Brooks, because when you look at Dylan Brooks compared to Draymond green, when you compare their resumes, there's no comparison. Draymond's a four time NBA champion. He won a defensive player of the year. He's one of the architects when it comes to just the player personnel in regards to golden state's dynasty, you know, Draymond's, overall resume at this point speaks for itself now when it comes to Dylan Brooks look the the Grizzlies are an up-and-coming team they're a feisty team they wear their emotions on their sleeves and I can definitely appreciate that to a certain extent but when it comes to the Grizzlies the Grizzlies while yet a loud and vocal team they just haven't really been able to establish dominance in the playoffs yet now granted they're still young and they have an opportunity to be able to make a name for themselves over the next couple of years. But when it comes to this back and forth between Draymond Green and Dylan Brooks, I'll just be frank about it. It's drama. And I know social media will just go crazy with it, especially when, you know, if someone thinks that Draymond says something good or if Dylan claps back, it's just kind of like this back and forth thing where one guy throws a grenade, the other one throws one back and it just goes from there. And this will be something that will be monitored throughout the rest of the regular season. And if it just so happens that these two teams meet in the playoffs with the Golden State Warriors and the Grizzlies, I would imagine one of the things that's going to be at the forefront would be this beef between Draymond Green and Dylan Brooks. Because let's just be honest Dylan Brooks flat out said he does not like Draymond Green. He respects what Draymond has done with Golden State, but personally, I just don't think that Dylan Brooks and Draymond Green like each other. And it doesn't have to be that way. And to be quite honest with you, I actually kind of like this from a competitive standpoint because when it comes to the current day NBA that we all witness, it is a little bit too buddy-buddy. Everybody, I think, respects each individual player a little bit too much because most of these guys are friends. They've known each other for a long time. But I like the fact that Dylan Brooks and Draymond Green are going back at it. And this could be one of those situations where Dylan Brooks, he's a young guy, and he's chirping at one of the old heads in, in the NBA because Draymond, he's no spring chicken when it comes to being an NBA player. He's in his mid-30s. But the hardware and the resume speaks for itself. And I like I like the fact that he class back and he basically tells this young buck, know your place, young fella. You're not there yet. So overall... I find this whole situation kind of amusing, but I think it's going to be something that could play itself out if these two teams play each other in the playoffs. And I know that that will be something at the forefront if that so happens when the playoffs start in late April, early May, around that time frame.
1: What makes me laugh about the whole situation is not the fact that the Grizzlies and the Warriors as a whole... Aren't necessarily in a situation where they can be arguing because obviously Memphis isn't winning. Golden State's coming off of their fourth championship in eight years. Like it's just it's not the same level of pettiness, competitiveness. They're what on makes, different
2: levels competitively.
1: What makes over me the laugh, t- over the
2: time over time
1: exactly? What makes me laugh is the fact that Dylan Brooks is. The equivalent of a role player, right? And and as is Draymond Green, everybody knows he is probably the fourth, fifth option in terms of offensive efficiency. That's just not what Draymond is anymore. He's more of a utility player. Go out there and get you some rebounds, get you some blocks, get you some assists. Can bring the ball up. Um, very aggressive in the post. You know what I'm saying? He is a a a a uh, a Swiss Army knife of sorts. Dylan Brooks is out here acting like he's dropping 30 at night. He's acting like he's competing and contributing to Memphis's level of play. I mean, there was a stat the other night. He was like, yeah, like three points, like two rebounds, a steal. And he fouled out or whatever the hell the stat line was. But he had things to chirp. He was walking into the arena with an open cut shirt, like acting like he's so important. Like if this was Ja and Draymond Green... To me, it would make more sense because Jaws, the superstar, even if it was Jaron Jackson Jr., again, one of the second options, Desmond Bain, somebody else that was competitive on the offensive end, somebody that was making a difference. I mean, yes, Dylan Brooks tonight had 14 points. Draymond had 16 points. So, I mean, like, he did something, but he's not somebody that is a contributing factor to a championship team, at least not in my opinion. So for Dylan Brooks to come out here and talk trash like he's playing meaningful minutes and doing something, yeah, is he a gritty player? Does he play defense on the—does he guard the best offensive player in most situations? Yes. I mean, for God's sakes, Dylan Brooks is getting known more and more as a dirty player. I mean, what he did to Donovan Mitchell a couple of months ago looked a little suspect. And other players in the NBA, what he did to Steph Curry a few years ago— the reputation that Dylan is making for himself is not a very good one. And I think that the chippiness between the two of them is very ironic. Again, Draymond was this chippy guy. Draymond was the character that you hated in this story of the NBA because he was that guy that was like not necessarily contributing. Like I said, um, Dylan is or Dylan isn't. But you can't make a comparison. Kyle already said, Defensive Player of the Year. Four-time champion. Uh, multiple-time All-Star. You don't get an All-Star game. If you're not playing meaningful, you know, if you're not playing good basketball, you don't you don't win a defensive player of the year award. If you're not doing your job, and in those situations, Draymond played the five. He played the center position when he won the defensive player of the year award. And for those of you who don't know, Draymond's like six seven, six eight, guarding players well past his size and weight. So that's a very 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 tall feat to accomplish. Again, it's it's levels. Dylan Brooks ain't there, and he's talking as if they've won. The, the Grizzlies have made comments like yo, this is going to be a dynasty, or we are a dynasty. You haven't won anything. You haven't even been to a Western Conference Finals. Like, You have not made meaningful strides as this young group to talk trash to an actual dynasty. And I'm just not understanding where this is coming from. I get it. There may be some bad blood because you're salty that Golden State kicks your ass every year, but congratulations, you beat them in the regular season. That's not really going to... You don't get an award for that. You don't get a pat on the bat for that. So... I'm just looking at this, and I'm saying I love it. I love that Draymond's calling him out. I love that Draymond is basically saying, you know, like, you suck. And to an extent, I don't think that Dylan Brooks is a bad at basketball player. We all know that to get to the NBA, obviously, you have to be talented in some regard. But you don't go at one of the best defenders in the NBA. You don't go at one of the all-time greats uh, of this generation in Draymond Green. And if you do, you better back it up. 14 points ain't going to do it. I'm not saying that you got to drop 30, but... You got to be a little bit more consistent if you're going to trash talk. And especially from the Grizzly standpoint, you got to win basketball games and go far in the playoffs if you were going to talk to, again, of this core, a four-time champion group. It just, it doesn't work that way.
2: And just one final point about the whole Dylan Brooks, Draymond Green situation. I remember Draymond was saying in his point on his podcast, he was essentially saying that Nobody on the Grizzlies really likes Dylan Brooks or sees him as this pivotal piece of that Grizzlies unit. Well, it's kind of ironic that Draymond did say that because, Kev, what was one of the biggest preseason headlines that took social media and the NBA by storm? It was Draymond Green punching... there There was a little bit of a delay there. No, it was Draymond Green punching Jordan Poole in the face. And it's just kind of ironic for Draymond to say that about Dylan because, well, let's face it. Draymond is a huge piece of this Golden State Dynasty. No one disputes that. But I guarantee you, when it comes to the one-on-one relationships that Draymond has with the rest of the players in that locker room, I can't say that he's buddy-buddy with everybody in that locker room. And he's even said that about Jordan. And I don't think Jordan should really feel any sort of pathway or take any sort of pathway to be buddy-buddy or be quote-unquote friends with Draymond after something like that because you know it's one thing to be competitive it's one thing to have disagreements on the court it's another thing entirely when you're punching somebody in the face and it wasn't just a small little punch either Draymond really went after Jordan in that shit. in that specific <laughs> scenario so it's just ironic that Draymond said it in that way about Dylan Brooks when to be honest with you I don't think Draymond necessarily has the best relationships with his own teammates. Probably not. All right. So up next, we are going to go over the comments that Fred Van Fleet made in his post game press conference after the Raptors played against the Clippers on Wednesday night, just to kind of give you guys a quick recap of that game. The Clippers did win that game against the Raptors. I believe the score was 108 to 100, but Fred Van Fleet had some comments uh, when he took the podium after the game and he did not mince his words in that post-game press conference, just to kind of give you guys a quick quote from what Fred Van Vliet said in that comment or in that press conference, excuse me, I'll take a fine. Ben Taylor was effing awful that night in particular to that game. And when it comes to Fred Van Vliet and Ben Taylor, Ben Taylor was one of the referees in that game. And there has been a little bit of a history between Ben Taylor and Fred Van Vliet. So this is not something that's relatively new and there's a, Minor update to this story. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, after his comments, was fined $30,000 by the NBA. Kind of expected he he knew that he was going to get fined either way uh, based on those comments. But, Kev, I'm just going to kick this one to you. What are your overall thoughts about what Fred Van Vliet said in his post-game press conference after losing to the Clippers Wednesday night?
1: Uh, I think it's justified. Honestly, Kyle and I talked about this when that video surfaced we think that NBA players need to be more vocal we think that they need to be more honest I mean the officiating of the NBA has gotten um what's the word I'm looking for soft there have been a lot of instances where players are getting texts for nothing like I mean like players are dunking on people and you can't celebrate you can't scream in excitement you can't stare at the player after you dunk on them I mean Jordan Poole just the other day got a tech for giving the ref the ball back via a bounce pass. It wasn't aggressive. Um, I don't believe that it was ill intent. I mean, obviously, if you see the replay, he legitimately bounces the ball to the ref and then gets a tech out of it. Because if he drops the ball where it stands, it's a tech. If he throws a chest pass, it's a tech. If he rolls it, it's a tech. It's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Luka Doncic got a tech the other day for staring at the ref, albeit Luka complains every single play. The refs probably were talking to him throughout that game to cut it out. So that one's a little bit more on an outlier situation because Luka does it to himself. But... In terms of Fred Van Fleet, this is a player that doesn't normally speak like this. This isn't somebody that's consistently in the media or having a negative narrative next to his name for uh, negative comments against the the officiating. This is something that needs to be put on blast. This is something that needs to be put on notice. The NBA referees are ruining games with the officiating as of late. Technical foul should not be something that is given for the, 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 the slightest disagreement with the ref. I mean, again looking at someone, giving them the ball. like I I can't comprehend how the league got so sensitive to the point where you basically can't associate yourself with the referee. The second they call whatever it is that they call, whether it' a foul, a, a travel, a charge, the second you get animated, you're going to get teed up. I mean, that, that tech limit at, at minimum needs to be increased from 16 games to probably 20, 25, the way that, dude, t- refs are handing out technical fouls like candy nowadays. It's it's really unnecessary, and I think that his comments are 100% justified because at the end of the day, dude, it changes the outcome of a game, especially in a key scenario. If you're down single-digit points, that's a free throw plus to possess. It's like, what are you supposed to do with that? Yes, you need to respect the officiating crew. Yes, you can't go doing things like cursing them out, throwing the ball at their head. But these aren't the cases. And in Fred Van Fleet situations, I think his comments are 100% Mm. validated. And I think that I agree with him to the extent of how he presented it. He didn't get aggressive. Did he use inappropriate language? Yes. But in heats of the moment like that, after a loss, after it just happened to you, again, he identified that this isn't the first time that this particular ref has given him text. And I love the fact that he also jumped in and said, the tech isn't the reason that we lost. The better team won. So it wasn't an excuse about the game. It wasn't him saying, oh, this this, this turned the game around. No. The, the Raptors didn't play well down the stretch, and that's why they lost. But for him to come out and say it the way that he did, as aggressively as he did and how he phrased it, I see no problem with it.
2: I mean, he even said it during his answer to the question. He was saying, I'm going to take the fine no matter if it happens or not. He knew where he was going to go with it. And for me, Kev, I'm just going to go at it from this perspective. I thought it was refreshing for Fred to say it in the manner that he did. And the reason why is very simple. Kev, the way that he answered that question is something that you and I would talk about or answer in a way where that's just a conversational answer. That's just the way that we typically speak in just a regular conversation that you and I have, whether it's on camera or off camera. And, you know, when it comes to the language part, you know, that's where the NBA is probably going to draw the line and saying, Hey, you know, we can't have this when you're at work and that's why you're going to get fined." But just from th- the perspective that I took, I thought it was refreshing for him to say it in the manner that he did. And I think it simply just be- is because, you know, when we listen to these guys in their postgame press conference, Everything is very PC. And in Fred's case, when he's talking about Ben Taylor, the referee that he was refereeing in the Clippers and Raptors game the other night, it was just very typical conversation that you're having with one of your buddies when you're just chilling, do, doing your thing. And I think when it comes to the situation with Fred, you know, he was able to put some nuance into his comments because he was saying when... The refs take the game over by making a call in this situation. It can basically kind of swing the momentum against that team or against that player that is receiving the technical. And in this case, you know, Fred didn't make a mention of that, but he was still saying at the end of his answer that, you know, we had opportunities out there on the court to take advantage of. We didn't. And essentially he was saying that I got to play up to a higher standard, that I got to play better so that we don't lose. It's just, for me, I found his answer to be very refreshing. Because it wasn't a PC answer. It was very politically incorrect. And I think when it just comes to the time that we live in, when you listen to Fred speak in the manner that he did, and he was detailed in his answer, I could appreciate that. Because it felt real. It felt honest. And I can appreciate that, and I can respect that. It's just... You know, it sucks when a technical foul, especially when Fred and Ben Taylor, the, the referee, apparently this has kind of been an ongoing thing over the last couple of years. This is not just a one-off. There have been multiple instances where Fred and Ben have kind of gone back and forth uh, when it comes to, I guess what you would say, a player-referee on-court relationship over the last couple of years. So maybe this is a situation where, these guys just got to meet one-on-one privately and they have to just get it out of the way and just try to get to a situation where it's bridge under the water. And then both of them can move on and hopefully resolve this issue. But, you know, just to kind of round this out, I thought Fred's points were on point. I liked the way that he said it. It's just the end result was obvious. He was going to get the fine no matter what. And like I said, I appreciate politically incorrect answer that he gave simply just because we live in a time where everything is so PC. It Everything just kind of feels like plastic. It feels fake when these guys get up to the podium sometimes. Fred VanVleet was not
1: that, and I can respect that. So moving into our next NBA topic, we, we've got to make a mention of this whole ongoing situation on first take between Kendrick Perkins and J.J. Redick and the narrative of the MVP award as of late being awarded due to, I guess, what Perk was trying to say, the ethnicity of the player. And there were comments made and, you know, uh, analysis made back and forth to where both men got heated, but we're losing sight of the topic, which is the overall award, which is the MVP and why players get it. So again, we are going to Prevy away from the narrative that Perk was going on and remind everybody that this conversation is well beyond anything that he was mentioning, which is why JJ's accurate in saying false narratives are irrelevant because Nikola Jokic is playing at such a high, efficient, and consistent level. So Kyle, to kick this one to you, with this ongoing situation between both of these personalities on first take, what are your thoughts on Nikola Jokic potentially being a three-time MVP? Well, I think that Jokic definitely deserves the
2: opportunity to get a third straight MVP. And you know when it comes to the argument that both J.J. Reddick and Kendrick Perkins had on first take, I think that the response that J.J. Reddick gave to Kendrick's assertion that the reason why Jokic is getting all these praises or getting all these votes is because Kendrick was thinking that 80% of the voters for the MVP for the MVP race are white. I think JJ was right to respond where this is not a narrative that fits with reality. And and JJ, I think appropriately made a good reaction to Kendrick's assertion, which I, I don't believe that Kendrick made the right assertion to make in that discussion. And I don't think the way that Kendrick went about it was the right pathway forward when you devolved the whole argument to purely race because when Kevin and I have talked about Nikola Jokic in regards to the MVP discussion it's never been because oh my god he's white first of all that would be racist we're judging his status in the MVP race based on what he does because let's face it Jokic is one of the most fundamental pieces to revolutionizing the center position in this generation of the NBA When you watch Jokic game in and game out, who facilitates and who has a bigger impact on the offense in the manner that he does it in that you've seen in NBA history? It's very hard to find somebody like Jokic who can go out there and drop you 25 points, get 10 to 15 rebounds a game, and facilitate like a point guard and put up eight to nine, potentially 10 plus assists a game. That's why Jokic has won the last two MVPs in a row. That's why he could potentially win a third straight MVP. It has nothing to do with his race, like Kendrick was essentially trying to say in that segment where JJ responded against him. It's simply just because Jokic is a phenomenal basketball player. And he definitely deserves and garners respect because of that. And when it comes to other players that are vying for the MVP this year, Giannis is in that discussion. Joel Embiid is in that discussion, you could even say Embiid may or may should even be higher than Jokic because in the one-on-one battle between Jokic and Embiid, Embiid smoked him. And that is definitely a point that you can make in favor of Embiid. But Jokic, when it comes to his overall play, I think if there are people saying that Jokic doesn't deserve a third straight MVP, they're not watching him. He is a phenomenal basketball player. We watch the highlights of Jokic basically every game. And the impact that he has on the Denver Nuggets is extremely critical to to their own success. Now, the one point that I will make about Jokic is if he wins a third straight MVP and the Nuggets don't make it to the Western Conference Finals or the NBA Finals this year, there may be a segment of NBA fans who will look at Jokic getting a third straight MVP and they may feel a little bit weird about that. They may feel like he does great in the regular season, but when it comes to the postseason, does he impact Denver enough to get them into a position to where they can be in contention for an NBA Finals? I understand that injuries with Denver has been a big issue the last couple of years. A couple of years ago, they got swept by the Suns. Last year, they lost to the Warriors, but this is their year, as far as I see it. The Denver's one of the best teams in the NBA. And they have a very good chance to make a very good run into the playoffs this year where an NBA Finals is a possibility. But if Jokic doesn't play up to his standard in the playoffs, then I think people can rightly criticize Jokic for not impacting the Denver Nuggets in the playoffs to the point where an MVP should be. Because had LeBron won MVPs three straight years in a row and he never made an NBA Finals or an Eastern Conference Finals appearance in that hypothetical stretch, people would be crucifying him. And if Jokic doesn't get the Nuggets into that situation, in that hypothetical that I laid out with LeBron, then I think that Jokic would be open to some legitimate criticism. But as of right now, Jokic deserves to be in the MVP discussion. And I disagree wholeheartedly with what Kendrick said. And I think what J.J. said on first take was accurate in response to what Kendrick said. So overall, when it comes to Jokic and his status in the MVP race, I think he definitely deserves to be in it. Not because he's white. It's because he is a great basketball player, and he displays it night in
1: and night out. And honestly, I have nothing more to say to this. I mean, I'm not really going to repeat anything that Kyle said. We're in full agreement as per usual when it comes to topics like this, this has nothing to do with ethnicity, this has nothing to do with race or the voters. When you're playing at the level that you're playing at, when Jokic is playing at that MVP level three consecutive years at the center position with the numbers he's putting up consistently, like I said, night in and night out, that conversation is going to be had no matter what Kendrick Perkins or J.J. Reddick JJ Redick thinks. There's nothing that any NBA personality or NBA media star that's covering the league is going to have to say because they're not on the court. They couldn't stop Jokic. They can't stop Jokic. If Kendrick Perkins was on the court, there'd be they, there's no stopping him. Kendrick Perkins was a bum outside of the 2008 championship year where he was a force at getting rebounds, blocking shots and being a presence. But I don't want to give any more feedback to the 2008 Celtics because we got to hear about it every other week of how good they were. So, that's as much credit as I'm going to give him. In regards to Nikola Jokic and this award it is rightfully justified again because he's putting up the numbers that he's putting up. Now, the only thing I will disagree to my partner's point is Nikola Jokic is damn near averaging thirty points per game in the playoffs year in and year out, and I mean he's doing it at an efficient clip. Uh, there was another podcast that I was listening to, and they pulled up Nikola Jokic's stats throughout each and every playoff series he's played against in the last few years, and when you go back to twenty twenty. They lost to the eventual champion Los Angeles Lakers, but they did have Jamal Murray, who was going off week in and week out. Then you got to go and talk about the year after that. They lost to Phoenix, the eventual Western Conference champions. Then the year after that, which was last season, they lost to the Warriors, the eventual champions. They're not losing in the first round to eight seeds. They're not losing in the first round to scrubs. They're going out and they're playing the best that they can and losing to the eventual either conference or NBA champions. And you have to prevy as well, Jamal Murray ended up tearing his ACL later in that postseason against the Lakers. You also have to remember that Michael Porter Jr. has been in and out of the lineup and he's been injured. Jamal Murray didn't come back until this year. So Nikola Jokic's best player over the last two seasons, you can make the argument, has been Aaron Gordon, who isn't exactly known for scoring. He's known for dunk contests. And Let's be realistic. Nikola Jokic hasn't played with an all-star at his side his entire career, whereas people that have won this award are playing with multiple-time all-stars, are playing with all, all NBA players. Obviously, Giannis Antetokounmpo being a back-to-back MVP um, in, what, 2019, 2020, whenever that was, Giannis was playing with Chris Middleton, who had made multiple all-star appearances. So, you know what I'm saying? There is narratives and levels to this conversation as well but to say that Nicola isn't performing in the postseason is a I would say an incorrect statement because it's not his fault if he was underperforming if he was scoring like 12 points four turnovers a game 10 rebounds and maybe like five assists that would be like all right he's falling apart in the playoffs he's not doing what James Harden does and he's not disappearing in the playoffs he just has no help People have to remember, yes, you're an MVP, yes, you're one of the best players in the world, but it is a team sport. He can't go out there and score 50 to 60 points a night by himself with 20 rebounds and 20 assists. You need to have contributing help, and you also do have to come out of the game in certain instances for rest. Nikola Jokic does everything he can do, and without help over the last few years, he has done the best that he can. And I know that that's saying a lot because we hold athletes to, to such a high standard because Ego, cockiness. I mean, the bravado that they have on the court. Oh, I'm the greatest that's ever lived. Jokic doesn't give a shit about these stats. He doesn't care about these MVP awards. He wants to win, and the record that he has. Whenever he does have a triple double, I think they're 29 and 0 or 30 and 0 in the last few seasons. So Perk coming out and saying that stat padding. I don't necessarily think so because again, they're undefeated every single game. He has a triple double over the last couple of seasons. So. That is another narrative that Kendrick Perkins has to get kicked out for because it's it's ridiculous and blasphemous. I will agree with Kyle, though. Now that they're fully healthy, the Nuggets are fully loaded. They're the number one seed in the Western Conference as of today. If they continue that and the playoffs on the Western Conference side run through Denver and they get eliminated in the first or second round, that will then, I agree, well, he'll be looked upon differently because there's going to be no excuse You can't say you don't have home court. You can't say you don't have your all-star or, you know, your second and third best players in Michael Porter and Jamal Murray. They're here. And the Nuggets are playing well. So now this narrative will be, uh, I would believe, a little bit more magnified because he's got his help. And I agree with Kyle. If they fall short of a Western Conference Finals appearance or even a Finals appearance, that third award is going to look a little suspect, even though we all know that that award is granted after the regular season, but it is a regular season award. It's going to look a little weird if you win three in a row, but you can't get past the second round. So uh, kudos to Jokic for how good he's been playing. I do acknowledge, again, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jason Tatum, Joel Embiid, and how good they're playing. But when you're doing what Nikola's doing this consistently at his size... There's not really much of an argument you can could...
0: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip, you ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Make.
2: I just want to make one clarification. If I made this by in my if I made this point in my analysis. I'm saying if if he falls short, if he doesn't play up to the standard in that in this upcoming postseason run that the Denver Nuggets are going to have, that's where I believe, and this is just me, I believe that there would be an opening for legitimate criticism to be levied against Jokic. But it's all predicated on if he does not play up to essentially the standard that you and I have for him, and honestly, probably that he has for himself. Like, Agreed. Let's just be honest about it. Jokic, like I said, is one of the best players in the NBA, and he's one of those revolutionary pieces at the center position. But it comes down to performance. And my point is, is it's, There's going to be a segment that is going to look at Jokic and they will say, if you don't perform in the playoffs, despite winning a third MVP or not, people are going to look a little bit suspect at you because like I said, if you were LeBron and you had won two, three straight MVPs and you're the leader of the team and you can't get that team over the hump to get to it. Eastern Conference Finals or an NBA Finals, he would have been crucified for that. But when it comes to Jokic, I think that there would be a legitimate opening for him to receive some criticism if he falls short. I want to focus on the if. Right. I don't. I don't expect that to happen, because more than likely, he's going to play up to his standard. It's just like I said, there's going to be a focus on Jokic specifically in the playoffs especially with how the last two years have been for the Nuggets in the postseason. Obviously, the injuries have been a major piece on why they haven't been as successful as they probably want to be over the last couple of years. But this is their year, like I said. If they don't perform up to what they've been like the entire year, one of the best teams in the NBA, and they fall short in the playoffs, that's going to look bad on Jokic. And that's just honestly how I see it. All right, so up next, we are going to go over some NFL quarterback stories that are currently trending in the NFL right now. The first one that we're going to go over is going to be Derek Carr. Derek Carr just signed a four-year, $150 million deal with the New Orleans Saints. He is expected to be the starting quarterback for the Saints for the foreseeable future, and he's going to take the reins to potentially lead the Saints to a more successful future based on the fact that the Saints fell short in making the playoffs this past season. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, What do you make of the Saints signing Derek
1: Carr to a four-year, $150 million deal? From an overall football perspective, from a personnel perspective, I think this is great. Yes, he's leaving Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs. However, he is gaining... I have to put this in quotation marks, the potential of Michael Thomas being healthy, who hasn't played basically in the last three years. But if he's healthy, Chris Olave is healthy, Jawan Jones is coming out to be a good, successful tight end in this league. Alvin Kamara is there. Mark Ingram is there. The offensive line of the Saints has been good. You have the dual threat capability of Taysom Hill. I think that the offense of the Saints is good and is going to do well for him, and he has a solid defense behind him, which he has not had his entire career. My issue with this is the Saints' cap. The Saints have not been under the cap in the last three to four years. We're talking the... I think Nick Wright, a couple of days ago, made an analysis and did some research and digging. The Saints have been paying almost a quarter of their salary to players that are not on their team over the last couple of seasons because you have to cut players to make room for the players you're giving extensions. Basically what that means is when you're guaranteed a certain amount of money and you cut a player before the fiscal year begins or during the season, they're still owed a specific amount of money that counts towards your team's total cap throughout that season. And if you're still paying them and they're not on the roster, that's wasted salary cap. That's wasted money. And you gave Derek Carr $100 million guaranteed. There's a there's a rumor and a report that Michael Thomas is working on an extension, not a restructure, an extension to his $100 million contract that he just received just a few years ago. I'm not understanding where the Saints are getting this money. Cam Jordan got paid. There's a couple of other uh, players on the Saints. Alvin Kamara got paid a few years ago. I mean, Marcus Lattimore got paid last season or two years. Like, I'm not comprehending where the Saints are getting these funds from how are you playing so negative in your salary cap year in and year out without punishment I understand wholeheartedly here right that the Saints are a multi-billion dollar franchise but the fact that there are no repercussions to basically just paying players and letting others go on a regular year in and year out basis I don't know what the Saints are going to do come the, the next few years during Derek Carr's tenure because They may have to start letting assets go because they don't have enough money to pay them. So, again, from a football perspective, I think this is a good move for Derek Carr. Again, a real defense behind him with good personnel, solid young core in front of him. Again, Prevying, Michael Thomas can stay healthy. This can be good. And with the NFC South being wide open now that Tom Brady has retired, I think the Saints can make some noise. It's a good fit, but there's just a massive question mark with the salary cap. Yeah,
2: and as far as I see it, Kev, I really don't have much to add. I think this just comes down to whether Derek Carr can be able to provide a better service at the quarterback position compared to the last couple quarterbacks that they've had at the helm. I mean, when you look at the last couple years, it's been Jameis Winston, it's been Andy Dalton, Taysom Hill at times, and guys have guys of that magnitude or that level, they've shown some flashes to be pretty consistent. Jameis a couple years ago looked like he was having a little bit of a resurrection with his career and then he gets hurt, unfortunately. And he's kind of just been in this kind of like teeter-totter situation where he might be the starter one day, maybe not the next. So the quarterback room in New Orleans has been shaky at best over the last couple of years. It stabilizes now with Derek Hart being that stabilizing force to that quarterback position. And he's got some decent targets to throw to, like you said, Kev, in your analysis. I think with you said with like with what you said, the way that the NFC South is open for anybody to take advantage of this year. I think this puts the saints in an advantageous situation and who knows, maybe they can, you know, get to a above 500 record, potentially win the NFC South. And then maybe they can get to the divisional round. I like the fact that they did sign Derek Carr. He's a decent quarterback in the NFL. I think if they were potentially looking at Aaron Rodgers or someone like that, that would have just been insane because I don't think you really want to deal with that drama and any sort of contract in regards to him. But overall, I think this puts the Saints in a decent situation for next year, and it stabilizes that quarterback room for the next couple years.
1: Moving on into the next quarterback, Daniel Jones. Bamboozled New York, from what I can understand. I mean, Daniel Jones got a four-year, $160 million contract, basically getting $40 million a season. All I know is Daniel Jones has more playoff wins than Derek Carr, yes but what he's done on the field statistically hasn't necessarily been the most impressive throughout his career. So Kyle, in your opinion, how do you feel about Daniel Jones making more money than Derek Carr yearly?
2: Well, I, I'd have to say, Daniel Jones is quite the winner here, but I think the guy who deserves the most credit from this whole situation is Daniel Jones's agent. He's the one that's making moves and literally pulling out miracles for Daniel Jones because as far as I see it, You know, Daniel Jones, statistically, in his career, had his best year this past season. Now, granted, when you compare him to some top-tier quarterbacks, there's no discussion to be had. There's a level of probably two to three tiers on where Daniel Jones is compared to somebody like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, guys of that magnitude. But... I do like the fact that he does have Brian Dable in the system in New York. And I think when it comes to the relationship that Brian and Daniel are going to have over the next couple of years, I think it's going to be a productive one. And this may be a situation where Daniel Jones will progressively get better in the NFL as long as Brian is there, because it seems like Brian was able to get the best out of Daniel Jones this past season, but you know, when it comes to Daniel Jones specifically and the contract that he received, forty million dollars a year is a little steep for me. More than likely for me, I would have been comfortable somewhere around thirty million a year. You want to build some incentives to get it up to thirty-five? I'm cool with that. But the way that they have this contract structure, if he were to hit all of his incentives consistently throughout the contract, he could potentially almost make a hundred to a hundred, well, excuse me, hundred ninety to hundred ninety-five million dollars throughout the length of the contract he would have to hit the incentives. And if he does that, you know maybe it's well-earned. But when it comes to me specifically, I think they overpaid to get Daniel Jones. Granted, he did have a good year for him last year compared to the rest of the league. It's kind of subpar to average, depending on how you look at it. But the Giants made the playoffs last year. They made it to the divisional round. It looks as if the team is moving in the right direction. But when it comes to Daniel Jones, I think... I think the giants overpaid a little bit for him for me it would have been around 30 million a year i think anything above that you're probably overpaying him but they're taking a risk they feel like daniel's their guy and we'll see what happens over the next couple of years with daniel jones being their quarterback of the future
1: i i i can't wrap my head around it I, uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm a Giants hater. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm not happy for him as an individual. Again, you know, your goal is to make it to this level and then get paid. But when we're talking about a realistic standpoint as to what Daniel Jones is worth, according to his statistics and what his performance has been on the field. I'm not going to sit here and say there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a financial limit to what a human being is worth. Again, we're talking about a football player. And you're judged and you are measured by your success. And his best season, like Kyle said, was to was this year. That's not saying much, considering he only had 15 touchdown passes. That's not saying much, considering he hasn't necessarily done anything the last few years. Does he have a playoff win? Yes. Most quarterbacks that get this big bag do not. So I will say, I understand where the essence of, hey, I, I'm the first Giants quarterback to win a playoff game since Eli Manning. I'm the first Giants quarterback to go out there and bring us to the playoffs. Since Eli Manning. I don't know if the Mara family is looking at Daniel Jones and getting Eli Manning vibes. Like, you know, like he's going to grow out of it. He's going to get better slowly. He's going to eventually lead us continuously to the playoffs. We love what he can do with his legs as well. I mean, let, let's be honest. You guys have no receivers. Kenny Galladay just got cut. Darius Slayton can't stay healthy. Sterling Shepard can't stay healthy. You traded away Kadarius Tony. I mean... The list goes on and on of their ineptitude to keep the receiving core healthy and targets that are available to him. And then we're just going to go down the line of his inconsistencies at the quarterback helm as a whole. I'm not getting how he got 40 million. I'm not understanding how he got that much money. Now, granted, again, I know that this was a big workaround. His signing bonus was 36, 36 million. His guaranteed money isn't as high as Derek Carr's. Derek Carr, I believe, got 100 million guaranteed. Daniel only got 82. But to have this much money and not have a meaningful season with average quarterback numbers that are starter numbers, I can't sit here and be like, you know what? He, he earned that contract. I agree with Kyle completely. It's got to be around 30 to $35 million at the most to get 40 That's crazy to me. So Daniel Jones has got a lot riding on him right now. Like 1,030% the Giants need to repeat the success they had this year or better. For the next four years of his contract, because if they're back in the top 10 of the draft, if they're consistently losing big games because of him, this is going to go down as one of the worst contracts, should I say worst contract extensions that could have ever been. This is also ineptitude on the Giants front office side. If you had any faith possible of Daniel Jones doing something, you pick up his fifth year. I understand that the years prior, he didn't do anything, but this is why most franchises pick up the fifth year to see if there's going to be a reason to give him an extension. I believe if you give him a f- his fifth year was going to be somewhere of maybe 20 to $30 million, I forget the exact number, if they would have given him the fifth, you would have saved yourself $10 million a season, which would have given you an opportunity to do something in free agency. But you had to franchise tag Saquon Barkley, and you're going to have to address the receiver room and the offensive line, and maybe some other key pieces that you're going to have to focus on. Giving your up and down quarterback of 25 years old, $40 million a year, isn't something I'm too happy with. So we'll see how this goes, but for Daniel Jones to get the money he got at this stage of his career is just ludicrous to me.
2: All right, so up next, we are going to transition to the Baltimore Ravens situation. Lamar Jackson did get a non-exclusive franchise tag from the Ravens, and just to kind of give you guys a little bit of an understanding of what that is. It is a franchise tag that you could place on a player, but it gives the player the opportunity to be able to sign a contract sheet elsewhere outside of that team that put the tag on him. But if that player, in this case, it would be Lamar, signs with a different team on a contract sheet the Baltimore Ravens would have an opportunity to be able to match it and if they don't the Ravens would receive draft compensation in return if Lamar were to go to a different team so Kev to kick this one to you how do you assess the Lamar Jackson situation knowing that this non-exclusive franchise tag has been placed upon him
1: So, I'm going to play devil's advocate here this is a very complicated situation for me People need to understand what Lamar Jackson has done in Baltimore since he's been drafted. One of the highest scoring offenses when he's healthy. He's won an MVP. He has won playoff games. And he has changed the culture in Baltimore since, obviously, the last time they were winning was the Joe Flacco era when they won the Super Bowl. That was a long time ago. Now, when we talk about Lamar Jackson recently, he has not been healthy. And when Lamar does not play, Baltimore is second, if not dead last in offensive efficiency. I believe they score 16 points a game when he's not on the field. That is a drastic difference as opposed to when he is. When we talk about the quarterback market and how that market is continuously reset year in and year out, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, all of these players getting different deals. Obviously, Patrick's known for his half a billion dollar contract. Aaron Rodgers is known for... (laughs) keeping Green Bay hostage at $50 million a year. And then you have Deshaun Watson, who gets his fully guaranteed contract for the first time in NFL history. The market is continuously shifting. And that is why I think that the Ravens are having a hard time because everybody knows Lamar wants a fully guaranteed contract. However, Baltimore is skeptical to do that because of his history. Them tagging him, to me, shows that they're not going to ever get to that point where they're going to give him a fully guaranteed contract. Does that mean another team won't to take the gamble and say, screw it, like the Jets should instead of going at Aaron Rodgers? We'll get into that a little bit later. I firmly believe that Lamar Jackson will not play this year if he cannot find a suitable contract offer from another team. At $32 million this year, if he does not sign the tag, I think he'll hold out. I think if he does sign the tag, I think he holds out no matter what. It's more of a situation of where will he end up? If the Ravens are going to get compensation for it, I would say let him talk to whoever the hell he wants. We're going to get two first-round picks out of it, no matter what, unless they're going to be willing to match a fully guaranteed contract, in which they've had two seasons to come to terms and figure it out. They haven't done it yet. So at this point, if they're willing to tag him at the franchise tag deadline, they're never going to come to terms with it. I think last time they were talking a couple of weeks ago, they were over $100 million apart and where they wanted to be. And both parties respectively decided to say, you know what, we're going to do what we got to do. The organization tagged him. And I guarantee you Lamar's agent is on the phone. And by agent, I mean his mom is on the phone with multiple teams trying to see who wants uh, wants her baby boy. So I mean... From an organizational standpoint, I understand where the Ravens are coming from. Um, to give a fully guaranteed contract to an injury-prone quarterback who is also a mobile quarterback is very risky. But from a fan standpoint, this is also a guy that's helped you turn this franchise around offensively despite not having offensive weapons. And I know that fans are probably shouting out to the skies saying, just give him the money because we suck without him. But from a Lamar standpoint, I also understand what he's doing. He wants fully guaranteed incentives just in case he does get hurt again because at the end of the day, players don't receive their full contract term when they're injured. There are incentivized areas where you're not paid the full contract while injured. You're gonna get like a less, if I'm not mistaken, depending on what your agent agrees upon with the franchise. But overall, I get both sides. I would probably say if I had to bet on it safely, Lamar suited up for the Ravens for the last time last season.
2: Yeah. This whole Lamar situation has been very interesting, just watching the contract negotiations take place in the manner that they have. And as far as I see it with him getting this non exclusive franchise tag, I think this is essentially Baltimore's way of saying, look, we're going to let you basically test the market in this way. And if you get the contract that you're looking for, if I had to guess, I think it's going to be out of their ballpark. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if Baltimore's going to try to match that because when you look at teams that are really desperate for a quarterback, they're going to pay literally an arm and a limb to try to get Lamar Jackson knowing what he's capable of being probably the most athletic quarterback that we've seen in the NFL probably since Michael Vick. It's just the unfortunate thing with Lamar over the last couple of years is like what Kev said, his his injury history has been noticeable and it's the timing of the injuries that has been extremely noticeable with it coming at essentially the end of the season and going right into the playoffs. So, Nobody's going to question Lamar's ability to be able to play effective football at the quarterback position for the foreseeable future. This really just comes down to a number game. And I think when it comes to where Baltimore and Lamar's camp are at right now, I just don't think they're ever going to be able to see eye to eye on a fully guaranteed contract, similar to what Deshaun Watson got with Cleveland, with the Cleveland Browns, because that is essentially the template that Lamar wants when it comes to his contract. I think that there are teams out there that would be more than willing to try to get to that point or maybe get the guarantee number a little bit up. But like Kev said, with the Ravens and Lamar potentially being as far as a hundred million dollars apart from each other in contract negotiations, I think this is essentially the Ravens way of saying, go find something that we can, you know, talk about internally, internally, meaning the, the Ravens would talk about internally with their front office. But I think more than likely, there's no way that the Ravens are going to match it because I think teams are just going to pay somewhere around 45 to $50 million a year for Lamar. And I think the Ravens would be out of the situation to potentially bring him back into the fold for next year.
1: Now, finally, one of the more interesting aspects of the quarterback free agency is a deal that hasn't even occurred yet, but for Kyle and I, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher just because of the context behind it. And we're talking about, just in case you weren't aware, of the potential of Aaron Rodgers being traded to the New York Jets. Now, to put some background to it, the New York Jets fell short of making the playoffs. Zach Wilson didn't pan out. They went with Mike White. The defense is elite. They have great offensive and young talent. It's just they're a quarterback away from making that jump into a postseason, if not Super Bowl, contender. Aaron Rodgers, on the other hand, in Green Bay, has basically fallen short, basically since he's won the Super Bowl, what was that, 13 years ago in 2010? The Green Bay Packers have just not been able to get back to that hump. But Aaron Rodgers has continuously won MVPs, statistical accolades. However, he's kind of gotten worse with age, and to put it bluntly, being a dick and holding the team hostage. I mean, the man's making $50 million a year to not even make the playoffs this year. So let's just talk about the context behind the trade or the potential of him being traded to the Jets. So Kyle, give me your thoughts on the Jets putting basically all their eggs in one basket to trade for a quarterback that's damn near 40 years old. It's a risk because
2: essentially what they're saying is they're going all in to try to win a Super Bowl With this team that they have currently constructed. And I'm going to be honest with you, Kev. I don't know offensively, even if you were to bring Aaron Rodgers into the fold that you would be able to have enough to be able to compete against the rest of the AFC granted. Like you said, their defense is elite and they have some playmakers on the offensive side of the ball that could be effective for them. It's just, I'm looking at this from a short-term to long-term perspective. When it comes to short-term, yeah, Aaron Rodgers can definitely provide a service at that quarterback spot that's better than what they've had the last couple of years in Zach Wilson, Mike White, and even Joe Flacco. But like you said, Kev, he's in his late 30s. He's going to be in his 40s. Once this season goes on, he turns 40 in December. And you're only maybe going to get a couple years from Aaron Rodgers before you'd have to turn to another quarterback. I'm going to be honest with you. I think this is a foolish idea with the Jets because essentially they would be doing what Tampa did with Tom Brady. They would bring him in for maybe a year or two to try to run for a Super Bowl. But then after that, you're going to have a pretty big rebuild on your hands after that. If they think that that's worth it, then by all means, knock yourselves out. Aaron Rodgers would definitely provide a better chance for the, the Jets to get to a Super Bowl than they have in probably the last 10 to 15 years. But it's going to be very short-lived. And I think with how I looked at the Jets this past year, personally for me, I thought that Mike White performed out of all the three quarterbacks that they had on their roster, the best out of all of them. Now, I don't believe that Mike White would play better than Aaron Rodgers. But at least Mike White knows the system. Aaron Rodgers would be in a little bit of a different situation where he has to learn a new play system on the offense. He has to get ingratiated with the teammates that would be his potential teammates with the Jets. And there's no guarantee it would be a smooth transition for him to the Jets that would lead to success in the regular season and then the playoffs. It's just, I think the Jets have some opportunities to be able to be a successful team if they had Aaron Rodgers next season, but there's no guarantee that they would make the Super Bowl. It's just offensively, I don't know if they have enough pieces on their roster to be able to get over the hump. And there are some real competitive teams in the AFC. you got to contend with the Chiefs, the Bengals, the Bills. There's a boatload of teams that you had to go up against and then effectively try to beat them. I don't know if the Jets would have that. They have a great defense, don't get me wrong. But offensively, if you just have Aaron Rodgers and you have some what I would consider role players at this point as your wideouts. outs. I know they had Brees Hall this past year, but unfortunately he went down with a torn ACL. So I don't know what his timetable is going to be when he comes back next year. It seems very foolish to me that the Aaron Rodgers experiment would be something that the jets are potentially thinking of, but if it's on them, knock yourselves out, but more than likely, I think it's going to end in failure compared to success. That's just how I see it.
1: I'm in full agreement with Kyle. Once again, I I think this is kind of crazy. I mean, to put it into context, you're basically banking your entire future on a quarterback that, again, is upwards of 40 years old rather than going after a younger quarterback like a Derek Carr, like a Lamar Jackson. Like when the report came out that Green Bay was going to allow Aaron Rodgers to speak to other teams, I believe the Jets, within like three hours or something of that report coming out, got on a Jet, and the owner, as well as I believe Robert Sala, got on the jet to go out to Green Bay to talk to Aaron or talk to Green Bay, whichever situation was first. Can you deny that Aaron Rodgers is still playing at an MVP level? No. Can you deny that Aaron Rodgers still has enough in the tank to at least potentially make another postseason run or two? Not at all. Does that mean that the Jets should go out and pay exponential amounts of dollars because they're going to inherit that Aaron Rodgers contract? that the Packers are currently playing, I don't necessarily think that they should be held hostage by somebody at that point. Not to mention, this is going to be crazy ironic. And I know some people have put this together already, but to kind of just announce it to my my partner here, this is the same thing that happened with Brett Favre. Literally, his predecessor did this whole process to where he wanted to be a Packer and then ended up on the Jets. And this is kind of like the same situation where they had a quarterback of the future in the wings that was Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love is no Aaron Rodgers. Let's be be blunt. I don't know why I said flunt. And this is literally 130% history repeating itself. So I will say, it's funny how the the tables have turned, but for Aaron to go to New York with those weapons and that defense, I mean, again, this is assuming that Aaron Rodgers is going to continue to play at an MVP level. That 100% puts the Jets in minimum AFC Championship title contention, because I believe what they have around that would be an Aaron Rodgers quarterback situation would be exponentially great for them. And obviously that defense is young and hungry. And Robert Sala is a defensive-minded head coach. It is going to be a good formula if it pans out. And that is just assuming that the compensation that Green Bay would get back would be good. I just don't understand why New York wasn't putting their attention to other quarterbacks. I don't get why they weren't going after quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson. Now, Kyle made a good point. I don't know if Baltimore would want to trade him in conference, but it's just you're putting all your eggs in one basket on Aaron Rodgers, actually playing well, being a good locker room leader, and then finding a way to get the Jets to that next level. Obviously, they haven't been there since Mark Sanchez in 2011, but or 2010, whenever that was, I just... This is such a high-risk, high-reward kind of scenario where you're going to pay him all this money if, for whatever reason, he gets injured, he struggles, he doesn't mesh with the offensive coordinator, or just, quite frankly, is just alienating the offense like like he did in Green Bay when he went out the entire receiving core in training camp. I don't know if that's going to pan out. So let's take a look and see what happens. Let's see if this trade actually goes through. Kyle and I wanted to mention it because it just continues to gain momentum as the day goes on. And uh, if it happens, it'll be interesting, and I I definitely want to know what Green Bay is going to get back in return.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Kev, I believe that pretty much wraps up the agenda. I know we we've been fighting this episode the entire time with the allergies, so I think it may just be best if we just you know wrap this up quick, fast, and in a hurry, and call it a day because Kevin like hanging on by a thread.
1: One hundred percent, guys. Uh, We say it every week. Thank you for the support. No matter the platform, you know what we're going to say. TikTok, Twitter, blah, 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 blah. We will be back on Sunday again to discuss a couple more narratives, a couple more topics. We didn't do the uh, three needs of each team. We wanted to take a little bit of a break from that since that's been going on for about a month. We had enough topics to kind of fulfill what we wanted to talk about today. Mm -hmm. But again, we'll be back on Sunday barring any major allergy reactions again. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll see you guys again soon. Yeah. Same
2: thing for me, you guys. Appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week.
0: Electric Est. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades, and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who are there. Our guests are from the A list, the F list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the want Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th.